great. I uh, hope you've had a good afternoon, um, whatever you've been doing, and uh, it's good to be back uh, looking at this together. So um, we just had read that psalm, Psalm 119, which, um, as you as you probably know, is uh, I mean, it's such a long psalm, isn't it? Um, the longest psalm in the Bible, in the scriptures, and remarkably, uh, every verse talks about the word of God, the script, God's scripture, God's laws, God's precepts, God's statutes, every verse, which is amazing. It's such a fresh psalm, just, in, just giving praise to the God who speaks, the God of his word. And so we come to the fourth solar, the fourth um, uh, slogan or summary of the Reformation thought, sola scriptura, scripture alone. We were looking this morning at the fact that Martin Luther's rediscovery of the gospel of justification by faith alone came when he was studying the Bible, studying the scriptures. We uh, mentioned that in God's providence, the study of the Bible had really come back onto the agenda largely via a secular academic movement called humanism, very different to modern humanism. This was an academic movement that wanted to go back to ancient texts. Ad fontes was its strapline, back to the sources. And that guy, Erasmus of Rotterdam, he was uh, the foremost humanist scholar of his day. And his Greek New Testament that kind of went viral through the printing press was instrumental in the recovery of scripture. Luther and the reformers rediscovered the gospel of grace in the Bible and they therefore elevated the Bible over all other authorities as the ultimate source of the revelation of God and the foundation of faith. We're just going to think about three things that the reformers did that they they stood on scripture, studied scripture and they shared or spread scripture. So the reformers, they stood on the Bible. Because of his uh, beliefs and writings, Luther came increasingly into conflict with the church's authority. If you undermine the church's source of money, do you remember they, their income through indulgences and, uh, and relics? Um, there's a lot of people who are not going to be happy with you. And people wrote against Martin Luther, calling him a drunk German, and he wrote against them, calling them far worse things. Um, people were quite mean to each other in the 16th century. And in 1520, uh, the Pope issued a bull on Luther, not an animal. This was a, a decree authenticated by the stamp of the Pope's bulla, or seal. And it ordered, ordered Luther to recant his beliefs and his writings about justica- justification by grace through faith within 60 days or, or 60 days or face excommunication and ban that is uh, no one could shelter him but would have to give him up for arrest now the church's unwillingness to grapple with god's word convinced luther that setting herself up over and against scripture the church of the day could only be a tool of satan and luther publicly burned the papal bull along with numbers of Roman Catholic uh, documents, and he declared the Pope the Antichrist, and he broke with Rome. In 1521, Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms, 
Now, this has nothing to do with a Bush Tucker trial. When I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. A diet was a debate or council, and Worms or Vorms is a place, a town. So Luther was summoned to the Council of Vorms to appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. So it was a big deal. And Luther thought he'd been invited to a debate, but it was basically his trial for heresy, the punishment for which was death. Luther's prosecutor in the trial was Dr. Eck, the wily old Archbishop of Trier. And this is what Eck said in the trial. Martin, your plea to be heard from the scripture is the one always made by heretics. How will the Jews, how will the Turks exult to hear Christians discussing whether they have been wrong all these years? Martin, how can you assume that you are the only one to understand the sense of scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church, in which all our fathers believed until death, and gave us an inheritance, and which now we are forbidden by the Pope and the Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Quite some pressure. And Luther answered thus. Your Imperial Majesty and your Lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, by manifest reasoning I stand convinced by the Scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. So in the most pressurised environment, before the most powerful people, facing certain death, Luther said, Scripture is my supreme and final authority. Here I stand. I can do no other. It's incredible courage. And Luther didn't die, because God's in charge of that as well. He actually legged it, which is valid, <laughs> but then he was kidnapped. And many thought that he had been captured and taken off to be executed privately. The artist Albrecht Dürer wrote in his diary, Oh God, if Luther is dead, who will now teach us the Holy Gospel so clearly? But Luther was not dead. His kidnapper was a friend, Frederick the Wise of Saxony. Do you remember the guy with the massive collection of um, relics in the town church in Wittenberg? He had Luther kidnapped and he hid Luther away in the Wartburg Castle and gave him a new identity and a beard to enable him to continue to write and teach, which is much easier with a beard. 
So, <laughs> the reformers, they stood on the Bible alone. Now, it's important to clarify what they meant by this. It's not that they said that Scripture is our only authority, full stop. That would, would be solo Scripture or nuda Scripture. No, there are other important authorities for the Christian. Uh, the creeds and confessions, the voices of tradition, church ministers should be listened to and followed insofar as, as they cohere with Scripture. But Scripture alone is our final authority. It's the authority that rules over and governs all other authorities. Because Scripture is the Word of God, it is from God the Father, about God the Son, and by God the Holy Spirit, inspired. And Scripture is so, so important. We're saved by Christ, al Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. But the place where we encounter Christ is in and through <coughs> Scripture. God's word that brings life and then brings transformation. The reformers, I said earlier, they weren't really setting out to change the world. They just wanted to get people back to the Bible. But by going back to the Bible, well, it changed the world anyway. Here's how Luther described the Reformation and how it happened in his eyes. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Or as the Bible itself puts it. Hebrews 4 verse 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The reformers stood on the Bible as our supreme and final authority. And of course, in our culture, the whole notion of authority is under attack. We, we, we don't like the idea of authority. We are our own authority. I live as I see fit. But God's word, he mediates his authority through his word. Psalm 119, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. So the reformers stood on the Bible. I wonder where you're standing. And the reformers studied the Bible. They studied the Bible, but not to know things, but to have Jesus. In, uh, in 1533, Luther wrote this. He wrote, for a number of years now, I've annually read through the Bible twice. If the Bible was a great tree with large and tiny branches, I've tapped at every branch, eager to know what was there and what it had to offer. 
See, why study the Bible? Why read it? Why read it as a daily discipline? Well, to live, to live by faith, means looking to Jesus for all our hope and joy and peace. And to do so, we recognise that we have no spiritual resources within ourselves, actually. Instead, we've got to constantly seek the gracious gift of Christ given to us by the Spirit. So the Christian life is a constant dependence on the word from beyond. And every day I need to hear of his grace and trust him afresh. The scriptures are where we meet the risen Christ. And so here's the thing, I think, that we read the Bible not as a kind of spiritual offering to God, but as a desperate receiving. We open the Bible not to impress God, but so that he might impress us again with his gospel. We approach our daily devotions as beggars asking our Father to please feed us with the bread of life. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. So the reformers stood on the Bible, they studied the Bible. And then, um, I want to spend a little bit of time on this last one. The reformers shared the Bible, they spread the word. Two main ways that they did this. Firstly, by a commitment to preaching it. Luther said that he valued preaching the Bible more than anything else in life. He said, if I could today become king or emperor, I would not give up my office as preacher. Luther, if you remember, he was the professor in the university at Wittenberg, but he, um, he regularly preached at the town church, now that there was room when all the relics had been removed, where his friend, Johannes Bugenhagen, was the pastor. I just wanted to say that, Bugenhagen. And he'd often preach twice on a Sunday and once during the week. Thousands of sermons Luther preached. Because the reformers believed and they taught that preaching is also the word of God. They pointed to passages like this one in Hebrews 4 verse 13. The word of God is living and active. And they noted that, um, well, if you look at Hebrews 4... That actually, when you go back to verse 2 of that chapter, it's talking about the preached word is living, active. Or they read 1 Peter 1, verse 23, which says this, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And verse 25, this is the word that was preached to you. The living and enduring word of God was preached to you. Preaching is the word of God. Not in the same way that the Bible is the word of God. Preaching is a human act. The Bible is infallible. But as an administration or extension of God's word. For, pe for people to be saved, the word needs to be distributed, not left as a book on a shelf. And more than that, Luther said that merely reading the word is not as fruitful and powerful as it is through a public preacher ordained uh, by God to preach and I think I wonder I hope we know this in our experience that God's voice is powerfully heard through faithful preaching listen to Martin Luther would to God that we could gradually train our hearts to believe that the preacher's words are God's word it's not an angel or a hundred thousand angels but the divine majesty that is preaching there 
to be sure, I do not hear this with my ears or see it with my eyes. All I hear is the voice of the preacher, and I behold only a man before me. But I view the picture correctly if I add that the voice and words of the pastor are not his own words and doctrine, but those of our Lord and God. It's not a prince or a king or an archangel whom I hear. It is he who declares that he is able to dispense the water of eternal life. Don't you love the way Luther writes? Doesn't it inspire you to go and read some Luther? It's just so, just brilliant. Now, none of that, that when you hear the preacher preach, you're hearing the voice of God, means that the preacher is anything, okay? Both listener and preacher are pupils of the word. God is everything. And it actually places great responsibility on preachers to know and proclaim the gospel so as not to be, in Luther's words, a kind of pest to the church, or worse, a wolf that does violence. But the crucial point is that preaching is not a process of education or a transfer of information. Often, you will already know the truths contained in a sermon. But we come to the preaching of the word not to learn new things, in fact, that would be dangerous if we want novelty. We don't come to learn new things necessarily, but to hear Jesus' voice and encounter his presence afresh. What an incredible incentive to be at church, to meet Jesus in the preaching of the word as well as at his table for the Lord's Supper. So the reformers spread the Bible by preaching it. They also spread the Bible by translating it and getting it into people's hands. Few people uh, in Luther's day had access to a Bible or could read it because the only Bible available, uh, the only official Bible, was the Latin Vulgate, which also happened to be a particularly inaccurate translation. In medi medieval art, if you know anything about medieval art, which I don't, but um, apparently in all pictures, depictions of Moses, Moses has horns coming out of his head. And that was because of a tr mistranslation in the Vulgate, which kind of, you know, I don't know what. But worse, the Vulgate put into Jesus's mouth things like people should do penance and believe. You see, the, the Vulgate was being used in a sense of bad translation by the church to perpetuate its um, falsehood. So the reformers set about translating the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek. Remember the humanist movement back to the sources. And so the reformers went to the Hebrew and the Greek and sought to translate the Bible into everyday common languages so that all people might seize and taste the pure, clear word of God. So of Luther's German translation, someone wrote that no other had the same majesty of diction sweeping vocabulary, native earthiness and religious profundity of Luther. Luther put it a lot more basically. Luther said uh, of his desire to show how relevant the Bible is, he said, I endeavoured to make Moses so German that no one would suspect he was a Jew. <laughs> now I think Luther there is saying something about his process in wanting to make the Bible accessible. You might also know that Moses had some unfortunate views about the Jews, but we can talk about that another time if we need to. In England, William Tyndale, wanting others to read the words of life that had saved him, he set about his life's work 
of translating the Bible from the original into English. He, he sailed to Germany, where it was much safer to work, and there, within a few years, Tyndale managed to translate most of the Bible into English. His translation was accurate and easy to read, and it turned out to be a gem of a translation, with words and turns of phrase that went to form the King James Bible and that have influenced spoken and written English more than Shakespeare. In fact, there is, that is Tyndale's Bible up there on the screen, one that's kept at St Paul's Cathedral. You know, it was illegal at the time in England to own or even read such a translation. And the penalty was death. If you'd been found to have read a translation, Tyndale's translation of the Bible in English, you would be executed. Some 16,000 copies of Tyndale's Bible were smuggled into England before he was caught in 1535 and burnt to death near Brussels. Uttering the immortal last words, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And just two years after Tyndale had died uttering that prayer, it was decreed by the King that an English Bible be placed in every church in England. King Henry VIII ordered, ye shall discourage no man from the reading or hearing of the Bible, but shall expressly provoke, stir and exhort every person to read the same as that which is the very lively word of God. Six English Bibles were placed in St Paul's Cathedral, crowds immediately thronging around those who could read loud enough to make themselves heard. So great was the excitement that priests complained of how even during the sermon, lay people were reading the Bible out loud to each other. Obviously, <laughs> not a great sermon. But you see, the message and the excitement were spreading. With the Bible freely available in common language, Luther said that it was possible for a cleaner to know more of God than ten professors in the university. Tyndale said to his enemies, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. You don't need high intellect to know God. You just need to be able to read or listen to his word. Psalm 119, verse 98. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I've not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much for the Bible, that through your spirit, its words show us the word who is your son, Jesus, and tell us the story into which you have drawn us. We thank you for the hard and costly work of the reformers who enabled us to have scripture in our own language and Bibles in our own homes. We're sorry that we so often take those things for granted and that we don't routinely read and reflect on and grapple with the Bible. Please give us a profound and growing love of scripture. Help us to engage one another with its words and its truths. 
pray for all the different times and places in our life together where we seek to hear and understand the Bible for our sermons, for our studies, for our kids' activities. We pray for humility, persistence and wisdom for those responsible for those things as they work to understand scripture and for clarity, creativity and passion as they communicate it. And we pray for all of us in those different contexts that we'd be ready listeners and keen participants who are changed by engaging with the Bible. And we pray too for people for whom it's hard or dangerous now to get hold of a Bible and places where it's not available in the language people normally speak. Thank you for those who put their skills to work to translate scripture and those who put themselves at great risk to distribute Bibles. Lord, you promise that your word will achieve the purpose for which you sent it. And so we ask for that work to flourish, that Bibles find eager readers and that your followers who make them available will have all that they need for that work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.